Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. This is Renita Malhotra-Hora. Most U.S. stocks fell on mixed economic data after a monthly advance that sent benchmark indices to record highs. HSBC shares fell after the bank missed expectations. And 13 years after 9-11, New York's World Trade Center has opened for business. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll have a look at how the Hong Kong pro-democracy protests represent a public relations minefield for companies. Joining us for that discussion is Paul Gillis of the Guangha School of Management at Peking University. We'll also be joined by Alan Lowe of the Press Room Group to speak about the Food and Beverage Group's recognition in the 2015 Michelin Guide. And we'll talk with Steve Wang, Research Director at Reorient Financial Markets, about HSBC's quarterly earning results. But first, a look at today's top stories. Most U.S. stocks fell following mixed economic data and a drop in energy companies after Saudi Arabia cut the cost of crude oil sent to American customers. The Dow slipped 25 points to 17,364. The S&P 500 fell half a point to 2017, while the Nasdaq finished a fifth of a percent higher at 4,638. Deflation is a growing possibility as governments worldwide struggle to create inflation and stimulate growth. Famed bond king Bill Gross writes in an investment update on the Janus website that the real economy needs money printing, yes, but money spending more so. And that must come from the fiscal side, he says, from the dreaded government side where deficits are anathema and balanced budgets are increasingly in vogue. And until that happens, deflation remains a growing possibility. And he goes on to say, not the kind that creates prosperity, but the kind that impedes. Heeds it. So should investors bid goodbye to double-digit returns? Here's what Mark Farber, also known as Dr. Doom, says. I think the concept of inflation and deflation is frequently misunderstood because in some sectors of the economy you can have inflation and in some sectors deflation. But if the investment implication of Bill Gross is that and he's a friend of mine, I have high regard for him. If the implication is that one should be long U.S. Treasuries, to some extent, I agree. Uh, the return on 10-year notes will be miserable, 2.35% mm-hmm. for the next 10 years, if you hold them to maturity in each of the next 10 years. However... If you compare that to French government bonds yielding today 1.21%, I think that's quite a good deal. Or Japanese bonds, a country that is engaged in a Ponzi scheme, bankrupt. They have government bond yields yielding 0.43%. Japan is engaged in a Ponzi scheme? What? Faber believes that it is, in the sense that all the government bonds that the Treasury issues are being bought by the Bank of Japan. And as Carlo Ponzi has proved, it won't end well, but it'll take some time to catch up with us. So what about the U.S.? The GDP print has been pretty good, and economic numbers look promising of late. I really have to laugh when I look at the economic statistics, because they are published by the Obama administration. And there I would be very careful to take every figure for granted. The fact is simply 
that first-time home buyers in the U.S. are now at the 30 years low. What does it tell you? That people don't want to live in homes anymore? No, they can't afford to live in homes anymore. That is the problem. And the whole uh, exercise with quantitative easing has been to boost asset prices. But the, the bigger problem is the affordability. A lot of people are being squeezed very badly because the cost of living are rising more than their salaries and wages. All right, let's bring in Steve Wang, who is the research director at Reorient Financial Markets. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Vinita. So, Steve, is Mark Faber just living up to his name of Dr. Doom, or do you think he actually has a point? Uh, he's a very interesting guy to listen to, and I think some of the points are quite uh, quite real. I mean, the, the fact about you know what Japan is doing and what kind of uh, implication it has on other neighboring country is profound and you know printing more money to prop up the market is something that we've expected along and told investors to you know ride along but ultimately where does it all end is a good is a big question mark and i mean with the u.s data front generally speaking we are sort of on the same page we believe the gdp number are actually a bit more uh, prettier than it actually is so we think the U.S. economy is not really going anywhere, primarily based on a very simple reason that, you know, good jobs are not really being created over there. So can, right. can you explain what you mean by a bit more tricky than it actually is in terms of the U.S. GDP number? Because there's, uh, you know, honestly speaking with the U.S. economy, we've been looking for many years at 4%. That's just, that simply does not reflect the reality. I mean, the economy of that size, of that maturity does not grow that fast. And we look at the, the components, you'll find there's a lot of tricky stuff in the, you know, inventory adjustment, some some sporadic spending here. There. So there's no consistency from quarter to quarter. Like, you know, when I look at the Chinese GDP number, at least there is some kind of consistency there. You know, there's a lot of debate about the Chinese GDP figure as well, but, you know, and on the, on the U.S. side, we think it should be somewhere more closer to 2%. To 2%. I mean, that's that's the more realistic rate for yes. a developed market or specifically the U.S.? Specifically for the U.S. Okay. All right. So when it comes to uh, debt securities, Chinese and Indian bonds are likely to be the best performers in emerging markets as U.S. borrowing costs start to climb. Now, this is what J.P. Morgan Asset Management and Invesco are saying. They're saying that China will probably cut interest rates sooner than most market players expect. And in India, the prime minister's economic policies are luring investors amid slowing inflation. Do you agree, Steve? U.S. Uh, in, in Chinese front, uh, we've been we've been calling for rate cuts since earlier this year, and we've been we have been yet to prove proven correct. So we're still waiting for that you know ma- ma- magical rate cut coming from the central bank, of Ch- People's Bank of China. And whether that's going to be a really positive bond market in China is yet to be seen because we have we have just had a sort of a. Uh, anti-corruption crackdown, and that's sort of feeding into the bond market in China, actually. So I know rates in the interbank market has been sort of uh, creeping lower, and and that's actually, you know, you can say that's a short victory, small victory for the bond holders. But the, on the longer term, a lot of people are looking at the rising and PL issues in China, 
and that's that's going to be uh, some somewhat of a haunting uh, sentiment towards investors that that market now. All right, let's take a look at some of the earnings stories for this morning. Uh, HSBC shares fell by around 2% in London after the bank missed expectations with a 12% drop in underlying third quarter earnings. And this is as it set aside a total of 1.7 billion US dollars to cover potential fines over alleged uh, foreign currency manipulation. It also revealed that it had been summoned to appear before a court in France over whether its Swiss private bank had helped French citizens to evade tax. The bank's chief executive, Stuart Gulliver, said uh, that uh, all these issues and the redress would continue to hurt the bank's profit. HSBC posted a 2% rise in pre-tax profits for the September quarter to to 4.6 billion US dollars from a year ago. Steve, how badly do you think HSBC will continue to suffer over the foreseeable future? So, in the, in the, on the HSBC front, that 4.6 billion third quarter profit that you mentioned is actually about a 20% miss from a street estimate. That's a pretty big miss. But I mean, uh, look, I look at the price action of the stock. It's actually not down that much. I mean, the market, the, the stock is acting as its nickname of elephant. I mean, it really hasn't done much, and it has, certainly has not rewarded investors this whole year round. Uh, right now, it's trading at just under eighty hundred dollar per share, and we're pretty much we've never really gone back to the ninety dollar category that we saw in early two thousand thirteen. So, the investment outlook on this particular stock looks pretty heavy, looks pretty uh, difficult to go upside. And I think a lot of the what what you mentioned about the earnings picture, you know, the provision for what they've done in the FX. Uh, uh, potential rigging of the currency market. These are sort of just you mix, makes everybody feels like there's a lot of baggages from the, the golden years of pre-global financial crisis now is coming to to bite their back. And that really suggests why they also said that part of the rising cost is coming from the compliance side. Uh, you might have also read that now one in ten staff works in the risk and compliance department. That's that's just crazy, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting what you say is, you know, sort of gone are those golden days of sort of seeing the stock, um, you know, at that 90 level. The question is, Steve, do you think we'll ever get there if not in the short term, then in the longer term? Or, you know, should we just sort of wish that goodbye for now? I think this this stock is sort of lifeless right now. It's trading at a one times price above, so people are giving them this, the you know a fair fair amount of uh, you know, what what you see on the numbers, eleven times price to earnings, and about a just under five five percent dividend yield. So I would say the only people who is coming back to this stock is is to buy that five percent dividend yield right now. Okay, we're joined now by Andrew Sullivan, a financial commentator. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Andrew, what do you think uh, about HSBC's earnings? Well, I think that a lot of the banks have got a problem because the central banks have basically made money free and uh, it's made it very difficult for them to lend. And at the end of the day, the bank's basic premise is to lend money to people for uh, more money that it's, uh, than it's giving them in deposits. Is this a buying opportunity for the HSBC stock? 
Well, I think, you know, a number of these banks, HSBC probably not at this stage because, you know, we know most of the, uh, the bad news is out there uh, and, and obviously we're hoping that rates are going to rise. But I think if you look at something like Standard Chartered where there's finally coming questions about the management and you could see a management change there, then there's something there to drive the stock. But as Steve was saying, you know, on HSBC at the moment, you know, it's steady as it goes. We're not seeing any management policy changes. So the outlook remains constant. Okay, HSBC's sister bank, Hang Seng, has taken an impairment loss of $2.1 billion over its investment in Industrial Bank uh, of China. Its um, stake in the mainland lender is worth $26.7 billion, which is $2.1 billion less than what it paid for. Steve, do you think the loss will impact uh, the capital strength of the bank? Uh, The capital strength of these banks looks so far so good, I would say. They haven't been uh, significantly deteriorated because of some of the blips, especially if you're talking about uh, investment stakes in the mainland banks. We're actually pretty positive on the Chinese banks because we think they are really, really cheap. So if you're looking from that perspective, maybe there's an upside potential even there. So I wouldn't be too, too concerned about any stake in the SOE banks right now. Okay, so you think that uh, Hang Seng probably represents a buying opportunity right now? Uh, I haven't looked at that stock, but uh, maybe it's a good look into that. All right. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Steve Wang. He is the research director of Reorient Financials. Um, uh, Andrew. Um, I just wanted to ask you how much, uh, you know, before we close the story on Hang Seng, uh, the, you know, the, how much this charge will actually further hurt Hang Seng's profit is yet unclear. Uh, the first half of profit plunged 54% to $8.47 billion from the same period last year. Uh, do you have any idea on where you think this might go? Well, I think the bigger problem is, is for the bank is, is in its basic you know, lending policy, you know, it's very much geared into Hong Kong property, which has been, uh, you know, having quite a good year this year. But, you know, we're still getting uh, concerns from the HKMA about prices rising too quickly, uh, and hence the demand for mortgages is going to be restricted. And the main, other main driver is lending to SMEs. And again, that's, a, that's an area of business that we haven't seen picking up because, you know, people aren't that confident in the general economy. So I think Hang Seng Bank and a number of the local banks will still be constrained by those uh, macro issues. Okay, a quick look at the numbers. Uh, the Nikkei is open and up a whopping 4% to 17,090. Australia's ASX index is also up almost 1% to 5,489. And Seoul's Kospi up uh, one-tenth of a percent to 1,956. Well, we'll be back momentarily to talk more about Occupy Central. The time is now 8.18 a.m. and the Hong Kong pro-democracy protests represent a public relations minefield for companies. Chris Oliver has the story. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Companies in Hong Kong are walking a fine line when it comes to commenting on the pro-democracy movement. By entering the debate, they risk being perceived as taking sides, and that means alienating one constituency 
or another. We're, we are joined this morning on the phone by Paul Gillis. Paul is the uh, co-director of the International MBA program at the Guanghua School of Management at Peking University. Uh, good morning, Paul. Good morning. So uh, last week uh, we saw some headlines in Hong Kong when uh, HSBC board member Laura Cha compared Hong Kong's democracy drive to the emancipation of U.S. slaves. This uh, had the unintended consequence of sparking an online petition. Um, this, it's a complicated issue in Hong Kong. What is the best strategy for companies that uh, are, are, are facing commenting on the, on the subject? Yeah, I think I think companies uh, are best to stay out of these kinds of political arguments. Uh, it's really a, it's really a no-win situation for the companies. If they uh, first of all, they're unlikely to sway public opinion. Um, as much as they might think that uh, that people respect their opinions on matters like this, they they, they are unlikely to uh, to move the dial at all. Uh, and then on the other side, they've got a wide variety of constituents, and uh, uh, what they're going to learn is that uh, uh, some of those constituents are on both sides of the issue. So uh, while you may please some, you're going to uh, upset others. So at, at the same time, we're seeing some business leaders and companies, for that matter, uh, under pressure to support or to enter into the debate, uh, at least from the mainland side, to uh, shore up support. Uh, how, how, does, how do companies manage that uh, pressure? Yeah, I mean, we, we saw that earlier in the year when the, uh, the large accounting firms were, were asked to place an ad to uh, oppose the, uh, the Occupy movement, and that backfired on them. It, uh, uh, you know, it resulted in a, uh, in a response by their staff to uh, put an ad out saying they didn't agree with the bosses and and I've heard also was quite controversial within the firms where all the partners did not agree uh, with what happened. And, uh, you know, in those situations, uh, you really just, you just, you just lose. And with the accounting firms, it also raised regulatory questions of whether they were really independent of their, uh, of their clients as they're required to be. So some companies in Hong Kong have been meticulous in cultivating relationships and influence on the mainland. Uh, does that complicate their ability to stay neutral at this time? I think so. I think it's uh, you know I think they're they've accustomed to uh, uh, to listening uh, to pressures from the mainland because they've been given special access to the mainland. Um, but uh, one of the things I think that uh, these companies risk is becoming part of the problem, and, and that is that I think this movement may be uh, may be changing from a a focus on. Uh, on the democracy issues to a uh, to a realization of what the root problems are uh, that brought this all about, uh, which I think is the limited opportunities for young people in Hong Kong uh, because of the uh, you know the high cost of living in Hong Kong and the limited economic opportunity, and uh, if the uh, if the established powers in Hong Kong come out supporting the mainland on this, they may uh, they may help to refocus the attention on them. So we, we've seen Hong Kong's tycoons, for the most part, remain largely silent so far. Uh, is that the best route in terms of protecting their own interests? I think that is probably the smartest uh, play for them. I'm sure they're they're under enormous pressure uh, to come in on the uh, uh, on the on the government side uh, to support the government in this situation. But I think if they they should also take that advice I gave at the, uh, at, the at the beginning of this uh, discussion, which is to stay out of it because they have uh, different constituencies that are involved. Uh, they're not going to move the uh, the needle 
uh, at all in, in terms of their comments. And I think they are likely to just refocus people on on what the, the, the fact that this is probably just a class struggle um, between the uh, uh, the elite in Hong Kong and the uh, uh, and, and the young people in Hong Kong. From your perch uh, there at uh, Peking University, what impressions are you gaining uh, from what you see, I guess, through your various media channels about the Hong Kong protests? Well, what I'm finding most interesting is what my students are telling me, and, and they generally are puzzled by this. They don't understand uh, what the students in Hong Kong are asking for. Uh, they, uh, you know, they tend to value social order. Uh, they, uh, uh, they, they don't understand why people would be so disruptive um, in this situation. They don't quite understand why people aren't just following what they perceive to be the rule of law. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, on the line this morning. That's uh, professor and co-director of the International MBA program at uh, Peking University, Paul Gillis. And thank you, Chris. With the principal restaurant uh, earning two Michelin stars last week and the long-awaited opening of the Pawn in Wan Chai, it's been a busy time for the Press Room Group. Group sp- spokesperson Alan Lowe joins us now to discuss the company's various achievements. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. So, Alan, you are a co-owner of the Press Room Group, and you must be very proud, and I can see that (laughs) smile actually on your face, because uh, the principal has won not just one Michelin star, but two. So, tell us what led to the award. Well... I don't really know. <laughs> well, we, we've had we've had two uh, we've had one stars uh, uh, for since 2011, so that's been two years. Um, the announcement happened last Thursday, and uh, I mean we were we were just ecstatic. I mean we we it was totally not expected, um, and uh, we're we're just you know everyone you know our chef Hanai Ahmaz and. Uh, um, all, all of our, um, everyone is just so happy. You know, it's it's a uh, it's a it's a great honor. Okay, so I think you know the, the closest knowledge that I have of how a restaurant gets a Michelin star is what I've seen in the Hundred Foot Journey, right? This <laughs> last summer, um, but you know certainly from that it seems like a restaurant has to work really hard to get those stars. So um, the question is, what exactly do you need to be doing, and what really is the difference between one? and two what what takes you from one to two um my my understanding um between well between one two and three is i think um it's obviously i mean once one star michelin it's already i mean at, at a certain quality where where um you know there's consistency there's um Obviously, there's culinary excellence, but then i think when when you when you when you achieve Two star Michelin, um, it takes kind of the, the that level of uh, of craftsmanship and artisan kind of to a next level, and obviously with with three star Michelin uh, in terms of the gastronomy, in terms of in terms of the creativity, it's it's kind of a you know I think I think the the official description is you would travel a great distance to to that restaurant. That's that would be a three star Michelin restaurant. Okay, so it's it's nothing to do with simply the decor and the ambience. My my understanding was that you know after the two, the second star, yeah. you know the third star is about the ambience rather than the food. Is that incorrect? <laughs> um, it's it was never it was never really 
100% clear what the what the selection criterias are and uh, uh and I think that's I guess that's that's kind of what makes the Michelin guide so interesting and so kind of mysterious at the same time. Yes, mysterious. They are mysterious. And they're, they're certainly sort of like the Oscars, if you will, of, you know, restaurant ratings. Um, the question is, how important is it? Of course, besides prestige, does it actually drive traffic? Does it hit your bottom line? It certainly does to a certain extent. Um, you, you, I mean, obviously, you know, when the announcement came out, the, the phone just kind of wouldn't stop ringing. <laughs> but... Okay. Uh, I think it also I think in order to you, the the next thing to think about is you know how do you maintain it because obviously it comes at a at a huge cost to to you know in terms of staffing in terms of in terms of really just maintaining the quality and consistency and standards I mean that that comes at a cost Andrew what do you think I mean certainly you know the Michelin star is very important from a consumer and a traffic and a you know general business operations point of view for a restaurant but what do you think about restaurant and hospitality investors or private equity investors who are interested in this space does it make a difference to them Oh, I'm sure it does make a difference to them. I think it's a, it's a very difficult business, though, because you know it's so much about the chef and the creativity of the staff there, uh, which isn't you know investors can put up the money which helps with the equipment and helps with the rental of the accommodation and things like that, but at the end of the day, it's down to the you know the the, the process behind it, the gastronomy, the the creativity, and, and that's really what Michelin's on about. It's uh, you know, the third star may be about the ambience and the decor, but in a lot of cases, it it's, has to start with the food, and that's down to the chefs. Yeah, Andrew brings up a good point. Alan, I'd like to ask, I mean, you've just seen the, the reopening of uh, The Pond, which is one of the restaurants in your group, yes. led by a celebrity chef, uh, the British chef Tom Akins. How much of this is really dependent upon the chef, and how do you keep that chef there? It's, I think, overall, the... The Hong Kong dining scene has changed so much in the last few years. Um, you have, and it's becoming very, very exciting. You have a lot of international concepts coming into town. You have a lot of, a lot of foreign chefs, um, some really talented young chefs as well, as well as established. So I think it's it's as part of the overall revamp. Um, uh, we we came across. Uh, um, Tom Akins, uh, and and we started talking to him, and and uh, you know I think it, it was it was just uh, it was mutually agreed that that it would be you know kind of an, kind of exciting for him to come out to Asia. This is his first project um, in Asia. Well, fantastic! We're certainly looking uh, forward to going in and checking out his uh, gastronomy at the Pond. Thank you so Thank much for you. joining us. That is Alan Lowe, co-owner of the Press Room Group. A quick look at the numbers before we depart for today in currencies. The U.S. dollar to the yen rate is down. One U.S. dollar now buys you 113 yen. One euro buys you 1.24 U.S. dollars and one pound sterling buys you $12.38 Hong Kong, that is. 
Brent crude oil is down to $84.78 and gold is down a tad to $1,163 per ounce. The Nikkei is open up uh, 3% to 17,030. Australia's ASX is 5,484 and Sol's Cosby is 1,954. Things to look out for today, of course, the U.S. midterm elections and um, the Macau government will also be reporting its casino revenue. I'd like to thank uh, Andrew Sullivan for joining us today as co-host, financial commentator Andrew Sullivan. And I'd like to thank Chris Oliver uh, for all of his good work. This is Renita Malhotra-Hora signing off for Money for Nothing. And a quick look at the weather forecast. It'll be mainly cloudy, a few light rain patches in the morning with bright periods during the day. The temperature right now is 22 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 81 Um, 81%. Now it's time for the news with Todd Harding. A Liberal Party lawmaker has urged the government to reconsider a suggestion from student leaders of the Occupy protest to reopen a forecourt by its Tamar headquarters to encourage occupiers to vacate key streets in Admiralty. Yvonne Lowe reports. Chong Kwok Pen was among five Liberal Party legislators who met the chief executive C.Y. Leung to make recommendations for his policy address next year. Among their requests was for Mr. Leung to reconsider opening Civic Square to the public. Mr. Chung said students had approached his party to say they were willing to leave the 